Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to our table, but before we do, could you do us a favor and hit the subscribe button? And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Rob, welcome back to the table, my friend. It is good to be back. It is fall here in Cleveland, Tennessee. It is fall. Which means that the leaves are falling and the rain and temperatures falling, which is always a trifecta of joy around here. It's classic Cleveland, bro. Classic, classic, classic Cle- Cleveland. That's a good way to put it's it. It's like just enough to be miserable, but not cold enough to snow. It is a great day for coffee, though. Always. Always a great day for coffee. We have a good friend with us yeah. here at the table, Mike Burnett. He's the pastor of LifePoint Church in Clarksville, Tennessee, just up the road. Just kind yeah. of go, go to Nashville and keep driving. You'll hit Practically it. neighbors. I wouldn't say neighbors. We're close. Uh, in 2018, Outreach Magazine gr- named uh, LifePoint the fastest growing church in America. He has just authored a book called Parable Church, How the Teachings of Jesus Shape the Culture of Our Faith. And he's got some lead connections. Yeah. So, listen, we're excited to welcome Mike to the table. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. It's good to be here. I feel like uh, I feel like the the uncle that you know I get called in for special stuff, but you know I don't come around a whole ton, a whole lot because of how far I am. But yeah, we're just three hours away from you guys. I love Lee. I love what God's doing in the Church of God, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be with you today. Awesome. Yeah. So I want to clarify, Mike, because I did a little little research. A little sleuthing. Sure. On your Twitter bio, you want to you call yourself a uh, a runner, but on your Instagram bio, you're a wannabe Arnold. So which is it? Are you runner or lifter? Uh, it's actually I'm a wannabe runner. A wannabe um, runner. Yeah, I'm the guy that enjoys finishing a run, but hates starting and and actually doing a run. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a wannabe of both. I'm I'm six six and. Um, so being a runner, you're going to, it's a lot of pounding on the knees. So yeah. I think it's a great idea, but the problem is I like ice cream and movies. And so I, I want to be a runner, but I don't, you know, do it. Cause that's kind of crazy. And then, yeah, I like to lift weights and, and, uh, like to spend time in the gym, but I'm never, you know, I'm 41 now. So the last thing I need is some beach body. I just need to make sure I can walk up the stairs and my wife doesn't think I'm disgusting. <laughs> I think that's too I honest. That's why I run too. That's this this show took a turn quickly because now I feel like I need counseling. So it's yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey I'm man, a, you know, you remember in your twenties, like you could just do stuff, and then oh, in your thirties, yeah, yeah. you're like, yeah, in your thirties, you're like, I could do stuff, but I'm busy with kids and work. And now in my forties, I'm like, I used to do stuff physically, and so I'm kind of in that resurging season again. I'm trying to get back into just staying healthy and right active. I, I recently joined a run club of all things. It's it's sort of just a gathering of people. We run about two miles here around the campus and then we go eat tacos. So it's really just <laughs> offset. Like like I run just so I can eat tacos. And so that's kind of the story of that. So And we all know Rob doesn't run. I do not run. Yeah. Not run. I do not run. Unless I need to run. <laughs> you run. But from bears or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a great story. Tell us a little bit about LifePoint Church. You guys were named Outreach Magazine's fastest growing church in America. When you got there, I believe there's only 85 people. I think that's the story I heard or read or yeah. it started pretty small. Tell us that story. How did LifePoint kind of take off and what did you see God do? And, and how did you get to that point in 2018 where you're being named uh, the fastest growing church in America? Sure. Well, first of all, we're super humbled and honored to have that uh, that recognition and and never really expected that. Um, I didn't grow up in church. I, didn't, I never attended a large church. I'd been a part of 
five to 600 member churches forever. Um, after seminary, we moved, uh, we took a job. I was a young adult college pastor for a couple of years in Missouri and then moved back to Tennessee. Wanted to be in my home state. Um, there was a, this church in Clarksville had suffered kind of a transition of leadership and the church had gone from 250 to 300 down to sometimes 20 or 30 people on a Sunday. And they had brand new building, two and a half million in debt, which that part, the brand new building part was exciting. I didn't realize how heavy two and a half million in debt was because yeah. uh, I'd never been the first chair leader before. Mm. But anyway, so 52 voting members elected me to be their pastor. And uh, in the summer of 2010, I came in my first Sunday, we had 85 uh, that first week. But I just I remember telling the, the, the board and the leadership at the time, you know, we have a vision to reach people far from God. We're going to have a church that that unchurched people love to be a part of, but like faithfully preach the word, fearlessly preach the gospel, like invite people to fully surrender their lives to Jesus. And, you know, I think a lot of times the critique of large churches is they water everything down. But actually, as I've gotten to know, a lot of large church pastors are super passionate about Jesus. And they actually, they're, they're trying to preach the word the best they can to challenge people. So, so we actually put that on the front end, like preaching is going to be a high priority, preaching the Bible. I'm an expository preaching guy. So I do verse by verse. And I typically like to preach through whole books of the Bible, which is funny too. People have said, you'll never grow a church preaching whole books of the Bible. And then we were, you know, fastest growing church in America. But um, right from the beginning, we just, we said that we want to have a, a culture of a church that is inviting to those who don't belong to church. Jesus had this really uncanny way of attracting lost people and attracting sinful people. So why, you know, I would, I would often ask this question, why in the world does the church do that? And so I didn't grow up in church. Uh, I remember as a new Christian, I had to learn language. I had to learn systems and structure that were within the church world. And I, I just remember always kind of like, I was really interested in Jesus and I'd watch his people sometimes like, I don't understand that, or I don't know where that came from or but I never rejected the church, right? Like I never was like, well, they're that tambourine ninja over there. She's going <laughs> to hurt somebody <laughs> spinning around. I never understood the flag groups and the mime troops and the like falling over stuff. I never got it as a new Christian. Um, but I, you know, I just, there was something about the church being, I always felt welcome. I always had a place to belong and I could overlook some of the things that I didn't understand because it was an inviting and warm and welcoming environment. So anyway, I just, I knew as a young pastor, I just wanted to have a church that, that even when people didn't understand everything we thought, believe, or said, they still felt incredibly welcome. And that's that's probably been one of the hallmarks of our church culture forever, that it's a place where anybody's welcome. Anybody's, they're going to feel welcome. They're going to have invitation. And we're so glad you're here. And then we're going to let Jesus sort out the details of their surrender and their lives. So anyway, over the course of the next 11 years, you know, church has grown every year uh, significantly. Typically, we've doubled at least once a year, if not sometimes even twice a year. And then uh, the real the real jump was we connected to the ARC, the Association of Related Churches, which I think the Church of God has made a, a distinct partnership with the ARC for church planting training. And I think that's incredibly wise. Um, but anyway, so we had partnered with the ARC for some training on their systems. And uh, that was some of the stuff that I wasn't we didn't really have all kind of ironed out yet, but they gave a simple set of systems that just helps move people into the family of the church and move them into discipleship and move the people. Right. And, um, and we just started really popping. I mean, we grew from 350 to a thousand in 15 months with the implementation of some new systems. We still had a culture of invitation, et cetera, but really adding the systems was kind of the missing component for us to, to move our folks again, keeping 
passionate worship, hard biblical preaching, all on the front end, but then just evaluating like, how do we get people moved into their discipleship, into small groups, into serving, into next steps, into being an outreach-oriented church in the community, all that kind of stuff. And um, and then uh, from there, just continue to grow. And in 2018, 2017, rather, we opened a new building that uh, went from a 300 to a thousand seat auditorium on the same property. And in a weekend, we grew a thousand and twelve people and then kept them. So it wasn't just like a spike and then back down to the previous week's attendance. We went from 2,200 to 3,200 in a week and then stayed in the 3,000. So our church never had 2,300, 2,400, 2,500. We just skipped about 800 people. Uh, it was kind of crazy, but grew a thousand in a week and, and uh, stayed, stayed up in the threes and then fours, fives and sixes up until, you know, COVID changed the whole game when it comes to attendance and what matters with Sunday attendance. And that's a whole other conversation, but right. that growth and, and somehow along the way that got picked up by outreach magazine and, and one of our team members had submitted our uh, numbers. I didn't, honestly, I didn't remember. I don't remember knowing that we were doing that. And the first year we were on that list, we were number 11. The next year we were number one fastest growing church in the country. Um, so I, I just remember being shocked and humbled and thankful to God that he took this almost dead church of 52 people and then put it at the front of a fast growing list. And, you know, it, it, it did some other things in us as a church and revealed some other things where, where we needed to grow and get healthy. But it also was like all of a sudden gave us the platform and opportunity to help other churches, which is actually part of the reason why I wrote the, the book that later came out and a lot of the coaching that I get to do now. That's yeah. cool. So I think, I think you, you know, number one, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, narrative in, in what you just talked about that, that we could unpack and maybe ought to unpack. But I think one of the, the significant things that you kind of mentioned up front um, especially with Gen Z and a lot of the college students that we that we have on campus or people that we engage with, uh, they have this dream or this idea of building this this church or starting a church or launching a church or ministry um, yeah. without really understanding first chair realities, like you kind of described it, first chair realities, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, talk me a little bit through sort of some of those uh, either hard lessons or fast lessons that you learned moving from being a support staff member in whatever capacity that was as a, as a college uh, pastor to that first chair reality, carrying that weight um, and what that was like. Because I think, I think a lot of times we romanticize the first chair can't wait to be King. Right. Um, And so, uh, and I think it's, it's a great thing. I just think sometimes we need a, an honest conversation about what those things require. So kind of talk me through that a little bit. Well, I mean, this could actually take a very long theological rabbit trail, so don't let me go there. But, um, you know, I've served on staff at two churches and have a Master of Divinity uh, from a a seminary. And and I think um, in that season and the stages of growth as a minister, it's very easy to, like you said, romanticize about the first chair and also criticize it. Mm. And, And I was pretty critical of what it would be like to be a first chair. And I thought I had a lot of things figured out because because I was able to watch first chair leaders without the weight of the first year. So it's kind of like criticizing parents in Walmart without having kids or criticizing politicians on Fox News without or CNN without actually having been a politician. We love to be right about what we've never done. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest lessons I learned right away was, man, the first year is stinking heavy. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason there are thousands and thousands of staff members and hundreds and hundreds of lead pastors. Um, the weight is so different. And our church wasn't very big, but it was heavy. And what I mean by that, it, you know, there were some 
challenges with the previous leader that left a lot of our folks wounded that I am now responsible. I, I was living in another state when all those transitions happened. Right now I'm responsible of carrying the load for the people. You know, the, the good shepherd cares for the flock. He looks out for the wolves. He makes the sheep lie down in green pastures. Staff members, they don't feel that weight. When you, when you start thinking as a first chair leader, I mean, you're, you're carrying the executive leadership of the organization, but more importantly, you're carrying the, the soul care of a group of people that God's entrusted you and they're God's people. They're not yours. So you're doing it on behalf of God for the good of them. Yeah. And man, if you want to feel insecure about your equipping and how much you think, you know, everybody knows a lot until they're in that seat. So about three months in, I had a basic panic attack going, I don't know that I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. Like Mm -hmm. there's no, like you can train and study and read up and follow all kinds of leaders. And there's just nothing like sitting in the seat and, and feeling the spiritual weight, yeah. like your words carry a lot more weight when you're a first chair leader, your decisions impact families and their well-being and their spiritual care. And man, that, that is such an, an incredibly humbling and amazing thing that the Lord entrusts, you know, to think that just, I mean, I, I became a senior pastor at 30. And just a decade earlier, I was on the receiving end of receiving Christ, receiving ministry. And now all of a sudden, God says, now I'm going to use you to bring ministry to people who are lost just like you. And that it's the God of the universe that lets us do that. I I think the weight of the first chair is just different. Ephesians 4 says that God has gifted some to be, Mm -hmm. not all to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I think when you serve on a staff, you're a gift to the pastor. When you are the lead pastor, you're the gift to the body. And, and that is something that a lot of young leaders don't think about. Like if you're on staff for a church right now, your job is not, you're not over that ministry. You're under that leader. Right. You need to serve that leader with a heart for that leader. Your assignment is actually to that pastor because God has gifted the pastor to be the pastor of the people. And that pastor has asked you to come help him do that or her do that. And so I think that was something that I didn't realize as a staff member. I thought, man, I could do it better than that pastor. I could do it better than the people I'm watching instead of realizing like what an honor to serve someone who's carrying that so heavily. And, um, and I, I had to be, I was humbled pretty heavily uh, sitting in the first chair, all of a sudden realizing like the weight that a senior leader carries. And here I am with a church of under a hundred. I mean, I couldn't have even, I, I remember like having to repent over, disregarding the weight that my former senior pastor carried with a church of 600 thinking, Oh, I could just do it better than him because I'm a different personality style or maybe a different speaking style, but that's nothing compared to just the weight of the assignment of the first year. And it is heavy. Yeah. Mike, you said something really interesting that, that as a staff pastor, you're under the path under that first year leader or pastor, not over a ministry, which I think a lot of young leaders, as we we are releasing young adults into ministry and over either youth ministry or young adult ministry, or we see them sort of taking these influencer roles in social media as Christian influencers in ministry, that's a critical piece of advice that they need to get under somebody, um, that they have to keep growing. So how did you take this vision for a team of a church of 85 and start to implement the vi- your vision, your heart? into other people to carry that into the organization? Well, to the point that you just brought up, first of all, you know, 
we just talked about this in our staff meeting this week, actually, we, you and I don't have a ministry. God has a ministry to the earth and the role of ministers is to get into the flow of what God's doing in the earth and understanding that God is a God of structure and order. He does everything with structure and order. And he also does it with like uh, leadership, right? So there's, there's layers of leadership, even within the Godhead, Jesus said, I do everything the father tells me to do. And the Holy spirit only does what I tell him to do. Like, there's, there's structure and order and there's flow of authority. And I think a lot of young leaders want authority without having first submitted to being under authority. And I was guilty of that as anybody else, man. And I think seminary trained me for some of that. Cause you know, we're critique seminarians, never critique youth pastors. We always critique senior pastors. We, we never study a class on, on like, you know, how to evaluate the history of all the different, uh, you know, kids, pastors over the centuries. We're always studying senior leaders, senior leaders. So we come out of this training thinking I've got all the senior leadership stuff figured out. And, and really the rabbinical method of teaching senior leadership is be under a senior leader and support and, and like learn at the feet of a, of a rabbi. Right. So I, I think uh, to your point, like, it's, it's unfortunate that we're training young leaders, man, this is going a whole different direction, by the way. And I hope it's beneficial. (laughs) Um, I I think we're unfortunately training because so much of our culture is wired towards the the youth culture, like all advertising movies, media, television, trying to empower kids basically to rule the world. Uh, We've got a lot of young leaders who don't understand the kingdom of heaven principle Mm -hmm. of submission to authority and seasoning and time and temperance and what it takes to grow into the person that God's called you to be. And the whole idea of like, I'm an influencer or I have a ministry or like, you know, no, God has a ministry and he promotes and we got to trust and, and wait on the timing of the Lord. And until the Lord's promoted you to the next place, serve faithfully in the current place. And if that's under a leader, uh, man, serve that leader with such an incredibly big heart and an honoring submissive heart to make the, make that leader shine as great as you can. Don't look at, don't look at ministry or jobs and ministry as opportunities to build your brand. You're building the brand of Jesus and the Lord's given you a leader to do that under. And so serve faithfully there. I wish I heard that more. And it, you know, I think I heard it when I was in my twenties, but I heard it from guys that are like us in their forties. And I'm like, what do those old guys know? And now I'm one of those old guys. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have listened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what we're seeing from a sociological perspective is, and this is not just in church. I think this is across the board in general is in every, in every realm and every sort of leadership environment, we're seeing these quarter life crises kind of begin to flourish, you know, 25 age 30, like, you know, they're experiencing this um, sort of this let down from being a social media influencer or whatever. And so those quarter life crises are also impacting the church, right? So it's, it's, it's part of this whole new, new world of care, this whole new world of leadership development that we're, we're being sort of forced into, to building and and dealing with on a, on a leadership level, right? So it's it's, it's an interesting phenomena that's that's kind of popped up out of that. So yeah, well, part of it too is we went as a nation. Sorry to cut you off. As a as a culture, we went from patriarchy to matriarchy and now filiarchy. So we went from patriarchal society, dads in the home leading the home, to matriarchal society, especially after World War II. A lot yeah. of dads are dead or missing from war. Divorce and remarriage became the norm. And now we're a filiarchal society where kids soccer schedules and their routines and their safety is the number one thing in the world. And my kids being happy and their needs are getting met. Well, 20 years of that. And those kids are leading 
and they're being told like, I'm going to be in charge. And guess what's the number one thing that's being challenged right now is patriarchy. Well, that's because kids are ruling and this is again, philosophically way off topic here, but, but young people are leading and ruling and they're influencing and they're challenging patriarchy and not to make a case about, you know, patriarchy or men in the culture today, but where it comes to challenge is we even challenge the patriarchy of God himself and the structure that the church, that God, that the church should reflect in the kingdom of God. Is that way too nerdy? I mean, no, 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 no. I think it's, no, I think it's, I think it's appropriate because I think even this week in some other uh, circles, I'll just say it this way, some other circles, there's been a huge uh, debate conversation about mother God, she Holy spirit, language, terminology, nomenclature that's been sort of resurfacing in, in, in the context that I'm saying, I don't know that anyone's really advocating for it. They're just not sure how to deal with it. Like, where is it coming from? Is it even theological? Does, is God male or female? And so they're, they're really trying to wrestle through. And I think it goes back to this, uh, this patriarchy sort of conversation when it comes to God, the father and how we deal with that. And so these are very nuanced conversations, which are directly applied to this conversation with Gen Z specifically because they're, they're, they're rolling through theology and they're rolling through discipleship and they're rolling through servantship and understanding what that means uh, within, with a very fractured concept a lot of times of who God is, how he moves and what he does and what he wants to do in their lives. And so, uh, so there's a, there's a root, I don't know, is that a root issue? Is that a, you know, where, how do we, how do we combat that? Yeah. So I think a great question here, Mike, because we talked about encouraging younger leaders to, to serve the the senior leader or whatever, how does the senior leader maybe not serve, but develop younger leaders to have Mm -hmm. that kind of attitude? What, what can we do as guys, we're all sitting at the table, guys in our forties, what can we do as leaders to help foster that? Yeah. So I think, you, you asked that question earlier, too, and how do we teach that to our team? I think I think we speak about it from a place of honesty and humility. Like, we have to teach this as something that we're learning, too. You know, I don't know any senior leader that just decided one day, I'm finally the father. You know, you grow yeah. into that place of fatherhood. Yeah. yeah. But, but good fathers know how to grow into that place humbly, mm. right? So I know as a 30-year-old taking over this church, I remember constantly thinking, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And here's the secret. I still feel that same way. But along the way, God has revealed some things and shown me some things. And I've learned some things that I at least I I haven't like I haven't decided the things that I've learned. I've just discovered the things that God's taught me. And and with humility, I can say, hey, the best I can do is say, here's been my experience and here's what I'm going to give away. And I think good leaders are going to walk with humility Mm-hmm. to say, this is the thing that I feel like God's showing. And this is how God is, is, is teaching. And this is what I'm seeing in his word. And, and so we put it before our team with humility first, but also with clarity because clarity is kind. Right. And so give clearly, like, this is, this is who we are. This is what we believe God's word says. This is how we're going to lead our organization. And this is the system and the structures that we want in place. So you give it with humility, you give it with clarity, and then you teach it from a place of, of spiritual authority, scriptural authority, and accountability. So this is what we've been seeing. This is what we've been saying. And this is this is what we're expecting now. So there's a verse that uh, my pastor taught me um, just in the last couple of years that has just rung true. And I think, 
I think a lot of young leaders, again, you know, here I am in my early forties thinking, I wish, man, I wish I could go back 20 years and Mm -hmm. have thought this way then, but that's just the nature of life, right? You we're growing from glory to glory. We're evolving in our thought process, but uh, Jeremiah 6, 16, the Lord says, stand by the roads when you're at a crossroad and look for the ancient path. So when you're at a crossroads in life, when you're in a a place of, of divide. And that's what our culture is feeling right now. We're at a place to divide. Are we going to go this new way or, or do we want to just go, you know what, let's look for the ancient way. And the ancient way is God is King. <laughs> the ancient way is like historic cultural values of things like, like the, the wars that we're fighting in our culture today, you know, like monogamy, sexual morality, fidelity, honesty, integrity, like character, all those things are ancient paths, but we live in a day now where it's like hustle and, and grind and influence and make a way for yourself. And so we're at this crossroad in the church world and in culture where a lot of our culture is just choosing the new way. And I feel like people of God need to go, well, Lord, what's the tried and true ancient way? Uh, Jeremiah 6, 16, when you stand at a crossroads, look at the ancient way and that'll be the good way. And then he says, and walk in that way and your soul will find rest. Yeah. So if you evaluate the world we're living in, I mean, we don't have a lot of rest right now. We've got so much turmoil. And I feel like I actually have another book idea I want to write on, like the Tower of Babel revisited in 2022, 2021. Like we've got all the different stones of the Tower of Babel. Now it's everything. Every issue is hot and it's a hot button and it's in front of us. And man, we're just building a new tower to get to homogeny and unity to the kingdom of utopia. And and I feel like uh, the the cost of that is our souls are all fried. We're divided. We're anxious. The anxiety and depression is so high on the rise right now. But the ancient paths bring peace. You know, once a year I go to a monastery up in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a required silence retreat. Three days of absolute silence. They have nothing. They don't have Wi-Fi up there. I mean, they don't have any cell signal. They feed you salad and cheese and like fish. It's real plain but man, it's like one of the greatest times of soul rest for me. All the noise is out. It feels very ancient. It is. In fact, I mean, it's the oldest Trappist monastery in America. Um, but there's something about selecting the ancient path of the way of God that brings rest for your soul. So in the, in the day that we're in, like when you're in a crossroads, do I submit to my leader or do I go do my own thing? Do I try to build a brand on my name, MikeBurnettMinistries.com with all pictures of me in skinny jeans and all this kind of stuff? Or do I make the brand all about Jesus? You know, that's the ancient path. That's the, that's the way of peace. So I, I think you talk about it honestly, you talk about it humbly, you set expectations and you evaluate accordingly and you keep it in front of your people. Uh, you know, and, and our team has really, you know, we, we talk this way a lot, you know, about values and, and the things that the scripture is directing us to. So to your question earlier, as our culture is confronting this in so many ways, you know, I think the church should always be countercultural. And, uh, and in particular, as we're, dealing with the, the cultural issues of the day. Let's go back to the ancient paths, man. What's the word say? And let's go into that. I love in this conversation on, on the ancient ways. And I'm going to, I'm going to pull it over into another category because um, certainly as you were named the fastest growing church in America, that probably opened up doors, conversations, invitations, and questions about what are you guys doing? Like, how are you making it grow so fast? Right. And, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I've heard this conversation. We've heard this conversation so many times, not only in the show, but just in other, other realms of people we know or whatever. Uh, When a church is growing, really growing or exploding in growth, the number one question a lot of leaders ask is what are they doing and how can we duplicate it? 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is an ancient path conversation, right? right? There, there is no. I think you you even mentioned it. There, there is no um, staff handbook in the Bible that says this is how you deal with these forty-seven staff members or a college yeah. pastor or whatever, right? So, so mm-hmm. when it comes to this ancient path and church growth. How are you responding to those questions of what are you guys doing and how can we, how can we buy into that or how can we duplicate or whatever? Yeah. My father-in-law has a statement. I love it. He says, as technology continues to advance, people keep staying the same, right? So the technology of the day, we're doing a podcast with a, a video audio. I'm wearing AirPods that are noise canceling. I mean, all the technology, but I'm still, I'm as human as the dudes that walked around with Jesus, right? I have the same issues, flaws, temptations. And um, when, when we were named fastest growing church, man, I got hit and I still do all the time. And I'm totally grateful to take these calls and our team, we're we're wired for this too. Uh, The question was, what are you doing? Yeah. How'd you do it? Give me the tips. Give me the secrets. And the first line of my book that I wrote called the parable church, Jesus never told us how to do church. So the question is broken. The question is flawed. Hmm. How do you do it? What are you doing? What are the five steps? Well, this is not our church. If you want to build your kingdom, then yes, ask somebody who has a kingdom that you want to build. But we're building the kingdom of heaven, right? We're building the kingdom of God. We're building the church. Well, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of heaven will not, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so then you go, well, he never planted a church. So how do we know what service time should Jesus, did Jesus wear skinny jeans or did he wear robes? Was there blue lights and smoke or stained glass and, and pews? Yeah. He said, I'll build my church, but he never planted one. So this actually connects to the ancient pathway of thinking. Jesus never told us how to do it. So spending all this money and energy on getting the, the playbook right is crazy. And every church, every church pretty much does the same things. They pretty much do the same stuff. Weekend services with sermons and worship, kids ministry. We do small groups of sorts, whether it's Sunday school or midweek. We do assimilation, you know, membership classes, training people. And then we do volunteers. Like all of us do those same things. I do the same thing as any church that you guys are a part of. The ancient path piece, because Jesus said, I'll build my church. The ancient path piece is how it feels to be in the church. This is what I write about in the book. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, I'll build my church. The kingdom of, and the kingdom of hell won't prevail against it. Never started a church. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, for him, the church is not a building on the end of a dirt road. It's not a congregation. It's not a staff. It's not all that. We're part of the kingdom of God. The church should be a reflection of life in the kingdom. And so Matthew chapter four, at the end of the chapter says, Jesus went about all the region of the Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. So what does it mean for him to talk about the kingdom? That's what he means when he's talking about the church, capital C. And one of the most brilliant ways that he revealed the kingdom was through these parables, 37 stories that he told, where almost every time he opened a parable, he'd say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Well, so what I did after we're getting asked the playbook, I'm giving away our playbook. I'm saying, look, call the ARC, get on their website, do that playbook. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've tried that playbook. It didn't work. For yeah. us. Then I'd say, well, tell me what it feels like to go to your church. Yeah. What do you mean? I go, well, how does it feel for a same sex couple to come to your church? How does it feel for a single mom to come to your church? How does it feel for someone of racial diversity to come to your church? How does it feel for a pagan to come? How does it feel for a Christian to come to your church? And people can't answer that question. I don't know what you mean. Well, Jesus taught these parables, and I purport in the book 
parable church that these parables are an invitation to the kingdom of God through this filter of cultural realities, right? So how does it, how does it feel to be a part of the kingdom of God? So he's, he's responding to his disciples, right? And when they're talking about how many times do I have to forgive somebody seven times? Well, and Jesus is like, how about 70 times seven? Who cares? And then he tells this parable about an unforgiving servant. He goes, the kingdom of God is like a, a guy who owed his boss a ton of money and he begged his boss to release the debt. And the boss does. He's like, you know what? Fine. It was worth like billion, $13 billion in today's economy. I've done the math on this. And then he leaves and he says, he sees a coworker of his who owed him like two days wages, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And he chokes the guy out, says, I'm going to throw you in prison, you and your whole family. And the master hears about it and basically reinstates the debt on that guy and puts him in prison. And he, and he said, this is the way the kingdom is. God has forgiven you of everything. Mm -hmm. Like you can, and how dare we not forgive other people? Mm -hmm. And so here's the, here's what Jesus did. He said, I'm building my church and we will be a people who understand forgiveness. We'll be a people who walk in forgiveness all the time. Doesn't matter what they've done to us because we've been forgiven so much. Right. Then I start going, do I have a church that's really forgiving? Like, do we have a church that makes people qualify to come in? Well, Hey, you're welcome to come in your past you know, no matter what your sexual past is, as long as it was heterosexual past, or do we say, Hey, anybody's welcome here. Like we're going to, we're going to, we're going to forgive what needs to be forgiven. Right. He has this, these Pharisees are grumbling with him about hanging out with lost people in Matthew or in Luke 15, he says, it says the Pharisees and the scribes saw that Jesus like lost people love being around him, tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees and scribes, rather than going, man, this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that we've memorized, they grumbled and complained. So Jesus did not defend himself, which Christians are really good at and actually terrible at. He didn't defend himself and go, well, you don't know their story. And I met him in grade school and he's been my friend my whole life. And I can't, you know, he instead tells these three stories, these parables of a lost coin, a lost mm -hmm. sheep mm -hmm. and two sons that are lost. Both sons are lost. We've renamed that the prodigal son, but it's actually the parable of the two sons. And it's one of the ones I write about in my book extensively. But go to the one of the lost coin. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God's like a woman who lost a coin. She had a bunch of coins, but she lost one. And rather than just go, well, I got 50 other coins, she flips her house upside down, throws the furniture everywhere, picks up boards in the floor, and finally finds her coin and then throws a huge party. And can you imagine being invited to like a shindig, a huge party, got a band and catered goods and everything else. And you go, what's the party celebrating? I found my nickel. I mean, nobody's ever thrown a party for a stupid nickel. Yeah. And his point is to say, and in my church, when the lost are found, we're going to celebrate. So I started asking questions. I was like, do we shout, clap and cheer when the lost come home? Mm-hmm. You know, when the parable of the prodigal or the two sons, when the when the son comes home, the younger son, the father interrupts his speech, trying to qualify himself and goes, son, we're going to put the best robe, best ring, best shoes. We're going to kill the fat calf. And he says to the younger son, it is fitting that we celebrate. So I start asking the question of culture, like, do we do we celebrate as a church? So I'd ask these guys when they're asking, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I go, well, we celebrate lost people. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But what about your small groups? I go, no, 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 let's back up. We celebrate when lost people get saved. Yeah. What, what could the small group, if lost people aren't getting saved, yeah. Jesus never talked about how to do a small group. He talked about how to celebrate lost people getting saved. Yeah. So we, we, we started asking the questions of what does it feel like to be a part of the kingdom of God? And I'm going to tell you something. Um, that's really threatening if you've built a church based on your preferences, 
based on your denominational distinctions, based on your brand, yep, or based on anything t- this year has to offer, like the latest LED. Now it's LED walls, you know, or five years ago it was it was blue lights and smoke. I used to joke all the time, and God help us. Unfortunately, we're still in the skinny jeans era. Um, I think any man that wears pants that their wife can wear, you should give them back to your wife. You know what I'm saying? Just that's just me being a Southern dude. You know, the, the original skinny jeans guys were cowboys, by the way, not worship singers. Anyway, it's true. So, so your skinny jeans have to be Wranglers, as long as they're Wranglers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, right. If, if you put a buckle and a, a cowboy hat, go and they're it. ironed, you got to iron them Wranglers, bro. You can't. And just put you them need on a. Straight. And you didn't drive, you didn't park your car in the spot. You've got a horse out front. Then right. I'm cool with that. But so anyway, we, what it's done, you're right. I mean, it, it opened a ton of questions. People would ask us, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then I said, well, how does it feel? And most pastors I found don't want to confront that because yeah. they like that. It feels like their preferences instead of feels like heaven. You know, I I'm convinced the people that were around Jesus and the way he treated them, um, they were so contrary to his preferences. I mean, he was a carpenter hanging out with fishermen. You know, he was he was the oldest son hanging out with younger brothers, James and John, sons of thunder. And he's probably thinking, you knucklehead son. You know, he was really refined in his speech and he had Peter around him. Jesus didn't hang out with his preferences. Jesus did ministry around those that were like transformed transformed and world changers. So many of us times, many of us, we build churches around our preferences in terms of feeling, and then we want a playbook to produce growth. I think God will give you growth if your church feels like his church. So, so I want to link two conversations that we had. We've had, you, you started with this conversation about vision when you got there. And then we talk about this parable. How does it feel? So how did the question, how does it feel foster and help shape the vision and the clarity of that vision in your church. So the, the mission of God is given to us. We don't get to argue with that, right? right. Great commission, go into all right. the world, make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've taught you. That's a great commission. That is the mission, the, what we do in every church, every church that God breathes on has that figured out. A lot of churches that they're stuck or stumped, they've lost sight of the vision of the mission of God. Right. First of all, uh, the vision is what we call our strategy, right? So we do it through four things. We do weekend services. We do small groups. Um, we do assimilation training. We call it our next steps class. And then we get people serving on teams, but the culture is the overlay of the whole thing. My pastor is a guy named Chris Hodges out of Birmingham, Alabama. And one of the things he says like you can have the greatest strategy and culture and uh, excuse me, greatest strategy and systems and even the right vision and mission statement. But if the culture's bad, it'll never work Yeah, because culture overrides mission and vision all the time. And there's a, that's, that's the struggle that a lot of churches have. They have the great commission and they actually have a good playbook, but the distinction is culture. And how it feels, what does it feel like? That's I, okay. For me, I differentiate culture and systems. Systems is what, how does it move people, right? So check in and parking lots and signage and all that kind of stuff. But culture is how it feels. Yeah. What is the vibe and the ethic of the place? And so you guys have this at Lee. I mean, you've got a whole process of like how to get kids recruited. We do these events. We got an application process, a $50 application fee. You got to have referrals. You got to, this whole system to get kids into the place. 
But then you do Lee days and then you have weekend visits and then you do chapel and then you do actual campus time. Why? Because you want students to feel it more than just see it on a website and go through the system. You want them to feel it. And the victory, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I bet 85 to 90 percent of decisions are made after a student felt it. Oh, oh e- sure, easily. Yeah. Uh, if you want the honest metric, 99.2 percent of our students who come to summer honors enroll at Lee because of there what it is. they feel, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's just one example. Right. Now, look, does your, build, does your building have problems? Is all of your staff perfect? Are all of your playbook yeah. issues exactly perfect? No. But what trumps the playbook is the feel. Yeah. And I think Jesus knew that. That's why that guy didn't even need a megaphone to preach to thousands because he made people feel like they were encountering heaven. I mean, yeah. think of this sentiment. Jesus was fully God and fully human all the time right? So everywhere he went, he brought the full weight of heaven with him. Yeah. That is an incredible experience. That's why he could say some of the most painfully true things, but because you're with heaven, you're with the full expression of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus. And I'm, I just believe that we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have creation in us. We have the ability to go, man, we want people to have an encounter with the kingdom of God this weekend. That is not a playbook issue. That's a culture of prayer, culture of invitation, yeah. mm-hmm. culture of mercy, culture of forgiveness, culture of truth and grace and all of that. That stuff, that's intangible. It's not playbook stuff. Yeah. That's culture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this conversation. I'm a, I'm a systems playbook kind of guy, but <laughs> you do love systems. I do love systems and playbooks, but I understand the, the purpose, the point and the power of understanding how something feels. So yeah. I, I'm loving it. Well, and it's the like, I can see that even in it's in everything. Culture and systems is in everything. Yeah. So you had a system need today to dress up. Yes. You had to wear a suit and a tie. But here's the cultural piece. You made sure they matched a certain way and looked a certain way for fall time. And you trimmed your beard and you cleaned up all the look of yourself because you had a system requirement, but you wanted it to represent you and to feel authentically you. That's the culture side of that simple decision of how you dress today. Right. It's in everything. And I think a lot of times in ministry, we overfocus systems. Here's the thing. You can even deliver a bad product if it feels great. That's McDonald's. Like, yeah. have you ever met anybody who said <laughs> the cheeseburger at McDonald's is the world's greatest burger? No, but everyone's eating it. I had this thought. You know why? Because you can go through the drive through quick. It's cheap and it's uniform. The system's right. And it's it's easy. The culture's simple. Yeah, I had this thought yesterday as my wife and I finished a Netflix show and we're in search of another one, which feels like the greatest mystery to find a good Netflix or Hulu show right now. And we've watched a couple where the trailer was really good and it felt good. And then you get into the show and it's terrible. Yeah, the heroes who ever created the feeling of the trailer, you know, and and so I think what we may have to guard against in our churches, Mike, is creating a really good trailer and a bad product so they don't feel it when they come in. How do we guard against <laughs> sort of that piece of it? Yeah, my buddy Wayne Francis, he's one of my best friends in the world. He pastors uh, Life Church New York uh, up in White Plains, New York. He says he travels a lot and speaks. In fact, he'd be a phenomenal, just a uh, firebrand for you guys at Lee. I think he'd do amazing. Um, 
he, he says, I've been to a lot of churches that were awesome on Instagram. <laughs> and, yeah. and you know how it is. I mean, we live in highlight reels. Our oh, yeah. world is highlight reels, but that's the modern path. That's not the ancient path. The ancient path is, is integrity, honesty. It's, it's tempered, right? Like think of the best things that we, we value everything new. Like you always want to go, let's give it a year or so to see how it comes. And that's everybody's beef with the vaccine right now. Right. Let's give it a year or two to see if anybody becomes three headed, but there is still an ancient value of things that are proven and tested. And, and here's the thing. You can have the slickest design. You can have the slickest website, the greatest production, but man, if your people aren't honest and kind and gracious and loving and merciful, like I know tons of Pentecostals, they pray in tongues more than anybody in the world, but they're not nice. You know, like yeah. that, how many, of, I mean, you, we're all Pentecostals here, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. how many of us know people that are full of the spirit? We got the right system, but we have the wrong culture. Yeah. We're toxic. We're holy rollers. We're better than others. And we're just mean. Yeah. If you want proof of that, go to any restaurant on a Sunday yeah. in Cleveland, Tennessee and ask them, how are all the church folks? Right. You want you want me to give you want me to give you names? I give, no, 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 we're not. Doing no, 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 because it's everywhere. It's all that's a different show. I tell our church like if you're going to be a bad tipper, go to Panera where they don't take tips. You know, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> overcharge you to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah, never. Well, I, I want to go in like seventy five different directions right now. Uh, um, so from a leadership perspective, then, all right, okay. So uh, I think you kind of set this up like nicely. Uh, which I believe uh, is a part of the solution or the answer or the response that you'll give. But with uh, great success, and I put that in air quotes because they can't see it, with great success, right? Uh, leaders oftentimes find themselves uh, uh, in a less humble s- state of mind, right? You know, I am somebody, look what God is doing through me, whatever. So as a leader, and I believe I can ask you this question quite bluntly, have how have you uh, been able to keep your focus on the things that matter, the ancient ways, versus falling into a trap of of a lack of leadership humility. Like, what are some of those practices that you that you employ in your life, or who are those people that speak honestly into your life? And that's that's really a major key. Um, my my pastors, my pastor, my overseers. These are people that aren't impressed with me at all. They've known me. In fact, my, my mentor, uh, who's one of my overseers as well, he started helping me when our church was 250. So he has the whole story, right? He's yeah. not impressed. He knows he's always thought I was a fast decision maker and a juggernaut. And he still thinks I am, even though our church has become what it is. He still cautions me. Right. And, and he still says, man, you, you, you're a justice oriented leader and you just make decisions too quick. And I'm like, wow, I hate politics and bureaucracy and red tape. Let's go. Come on. We're, we're fighting the devil here. I'm not fighting Christians. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, yeah, you have to have to have to exa- absolutely have people in your life that aren't impressed with you. Uh, but also I, I have, and, and this is going to sound a little narcissistic or arrogant perhaps, but it's just the truth. I have a deep abiding fear of losing the breath of God in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I just, man, the last thing I want to do is, is lose what God's doing because I've somehow mistook the idea that it's somehow about me or depends on me. Mm-hmm. And I had a deep dependence on that when I started and I've just got people in my life that keep telling me to, to keep that dependence on him. Yeah. Here's what I do. Here's what I do believe. Like I think large church pastors get 
sometimes a reasonable reputation, but I think a lot of times we're falsely accused of some things, right? Like I, I literally took this church with no guaranteed paycheck. I took this church at 30 thinking I just want it to grow to a hundred. That's all I cared about. And I never set out to pastor a big church. My desire was to pastor a healthy church. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's multiple thousands, multiple campuses, got a book deal, all this kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, man, I don't think God is ever obligated to keep his spirit on something that doesn't have their focus on him. So we have this deep sense of like Jesus first. He's the king of this thing. He's the master of this thing. He's the pastor of this church. And I think um, when, when our church hit 600, I called a, a buddy of mine named Brian Jarrett in Dallas, Texas. And I said, actually at 800, I said, Brian, I've never been part of a church this large. I don't know what to do. Help me. And he gave me some practical advice. He gave me some encouragement, some coaching. And he's one of my brothers in the faith, you know, a great friend. And he said, uh, hey, let me just tell you, he 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 grew up a large church as well. And at about a thousand, he had this like 75 year old man come in his office. He had never met him before. He was going to his church. And this guy says to him, I want to be your mentor. And Pastor Brian's like, what are you talking about? I don't even know you. He said, look, I feel like the Lord's given me a place to come and speak some things into your life. If you let me, if you, if it's no good for you, you just kick me out. No problem. So anyway, he, he opens this dialogue with the guy. And in one of the conversations, the guy tells him, he said, Brian, don't ever let people make you a king. He said, what are you talking about? Now, Brian was like traveling all the time, speaking. He was really popular in our tribe. And uh, I mean, constantly speaking, traveling. He was well known. And he said, people by nature are kingmakers. They want a king. They want a champion. They want someone to look to. And he said, they will make you a king and you will want to let them. But he said, you can't let them make you a king. Don't ever believe that you are. Man, that has just stuck with me forever. People are kingmakers. They want to love their pastor. They want to look up to their pastor. And they... They, I don't think it's with malicious intent, right? Yeah. But man, you've got to decide like at every level of leadership that you're not a king, you serve the king, you're a jester. All you are is a good juggler who's able to capture the attention so that when the king shows up, you can go look, there he is. He said, don't let people make you a king. I've got mentors in my life. My buddy Choco de Jesus, he says to me in every phone call we have, stay humble, fly low, don't make a big deal out of yourself. I've never once invited myself to speak anywhere ever. I just won't do it. I've never expected anything from anybody. When they, when they ask me to come speak, I go, whatever, if I can do it, I'll do it. I expect nothing in return. I'm the most, I, I want to be the most low maintenance guest anyone's ever had. I've never asked for a certain dollar amount to do anything. I just, but, but my wife keeps me grounded. My mentors in my life keep me just reminded like to stay humble, stay humble, stay humble. And I have this deep fear of losing the breath of God on what I'm doing. And I'm nothing's worth it to me. My social media is more about my church than it's about me. And I don't even manage it. My team does that. Cause I, I just know like the pull of like building a platform and building a, 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 a visibility and notoriety, man, that is not the place for, we are servants under Jesus. It's yeah. his kingdom. John the Baptist was the greatest leader. Those people had ever seen until Jesus showed up. And he immediately said, he must increase. I will decrease. I must decrease. So I, I think you just have to have an abiding. I, it comes from an abiding love for God and a deep desire to keep the breath of God on what you're doing. Yeah. And I just, Man. I don't know. I, I want that badly. I want to finish well. I don't ever want to go to my family members and say, Hey, pray for me. Cause I lost it all. Cause I did something stupid. Yeah. Man, we appreciate that. Just that vulnerability and, and sort of honesty about that. Um, we have a cut. We have lots of conversations around here. One about 
about the trap of celebrity celebrity leadership, especially yeah. in Christian culture. Um, we've just yeah. this year watched too many people crash and burn. Um, and then the, the idea of mentoring, you mentioned that several mentors by name, but you mentioned mentors. How vital has that been to Couldn't do it without them? Yeah. To share a little bit about that process, what that looks like for you, how that's benefited you. Yeah, I couldn't do, I, I still don't do anything without talking to my pastors and my mentors. I mean, um, the pastor in Knoxville, all his kids, by the way, went to leave the Culberson family, but Barry Culberson, man, I, I put things on his radar still. His church, you know, has never done what LifePoint's done, but I don't care. I'm submitted to him in my life. He's the guy that called the, the saw the call of God of ministry on my life and called it out of me. I was going to be an opera singer. My plan was to finish my degree in music, go to grad school and travel Europe. And he said, I see the call of God on your life. You should consider maybe come be my choir director and then be my youth pastor. And so I've just, I've maintained that I've kept that relationship. And here, here's the thing, sons chase fathers, right? Fathers, yeah. you can't, what, one, one thing that happens and part of it's this fatherless generation we're, we're into, we have this whole entitlement thing that if, if I'm going to have a mentor, they need to come check in on me. No, no, no. Sons should chase their fathers down and, and keep them abreast. I have uh, three overseers in my church. I have my pastor, Pastor Chris in Birmingham. I've got my original pastor in Knoxville. And these are men that I've just decided that I'm going to keep in the loop of my life. I stay under their prayer covering and I don't make any major decisions as the leader of this church. And, and here's the thing. Most people on my team, most people on our, in our church, they trust me to make decisions, but it's because I'm submitted still, even in the position I'm in, I'm still submitted under mentors and spiritual fathers in my life. It is absolutely, I think, vital and totally never talked about, Yeah, but it's something I think that's so needed. That's awesome. I reached out to um, my mentor for the last 20 years and we were uh, actually, what's interesting, I came back into grad school here at Lee and he was one of the professors. And I said, I don't think you know the level of impact you made on my life. You, you shortchange how impactful it was because he brushes it off sometimes and goes, you know, I'm glad I had some help in that. But I look at him like, wow, this was mm. critical to who I was. And so I think as sons, we see the impact much deeper than those who are fathers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's true in family issues, right? How many people are in counseling because their dad was this or that? And the dad's like, I had no idea. You know, I was just yeah. being myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my, my pastor, Barry, you know, in Knoxville, um, he, he, here's the other thing. Like we look for mentors that are doing, I think a mentor and a model are different. Mm. Um, so you can have a model who's doing what you want to do, but that doesn't mean they're going to be your mentor. And they may have some mentoring ability, you know, and you don't even have to know somebody for them to mentor. Craig Rochelle mentors me. We've never met, but the guy's brilliant. Gerald Brooks is a mentor of mine and we don't, we're not around each other all the time. We talk a lot, but, but he's done things that I've never done, but he's more, he's a model in certain regards, but a mentor like, and a pastor, they don't have to have done what you've done to be able to have a spiritual love for yeah. you yeah. and to cover you, you know, shepherds never do what sheep do. <laughs> so, uh, you, you, you know, a lot of times we are looking for a pastor who's done what we want to do. Well, you just need a pastor. You just need somebody to love you and care for you and put you in some green pastures and some still waters, but the yeah. shepherd never eats the grass or drinks that water. Cause it'll be toxic for them. They may not do what you do, but they still need to cover you. That's good. Well, two, a couple of things I know. Number one, 
we're out of time. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, this is number two. Great. Number two, we're gonna have to do a part two to the show. Yeah. I I would love to or do just a part have, two. Just have Mike here to talk. Yeah, or we could just have Mike over to talk. <laughs> yeah, show, we could though. do we could do like a live show. Um, but hey, man, again, we love the we love having you on the show, and um, it's an, it's an honor, a lot really. of thank conversation you. that we got left. So I definitely want to think about a part two at some point. But we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests on the show. So okay. what is one lesson that you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> my, my greatest memory outside of the classroom from college, again, I went to the university of Tennessee was uh, meeting my wife. And so she's from Dayton, Ohio. She moved down there to be a piano major. I was a voice major and, uh, I, you know, learning how I didn't grow up in a family with married parents. Um, Many of my family members had very dysfunctional relationships, multiple marriages and, you know, affairs and all that kind of stuff. So I was a young Christian when I <clears throat> went to college, but I, I learned and, and I spent like a year and a half really in prayerful study and trying to be discipled by men who had long lasting marriages. I mean, this is probably more serious than what you were looking for, no. but I just, I learned the value of faithfulness to one woman and fidelity and how to wait and patience and temperance for God's best. And so when I met my wife, man, she had never dated anybody. She prayed for her husband since she was 14 years old. And, you know, she didn't know me at all. In fact, the joke is if she knew me when she was praying for her husband, she would have been like, and definitely not that dude. Because um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even saved. But anyway, um, I just, I, I don't know. I learned some valuable lessons about faithfulness, fidelity, and waiting for God's best uh, in the story of meeting my wife and subsequently marrying her. So we will that's have awesome. been married 20 years next summer. I'm pretty awesome. excited for that. That's awesome. awesome. That's that's a great that's a great lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Very valuable. Well, Mike, it's been great to have you on the show. Again, the book is Parable Church, How the Teachings of Jesus Shaped the Culture of Our Faith. Make sure to pick that up. Anywhere books are sold, like we all buy books on Amazon. So let's be honest about yeah. where we got our buy our books. But uh that's the book. And and as we always say here at the leadership drip, man, you've got a seat at the table. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. Appreciate you guys. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. If something from this episode helped you lead better, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may share it to our channels. We appreciate you taking time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.